Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And as you make your way there, I want to welcome all the guests we have with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for visiting with us. And we hope that you've been encouraged and blessed so far. And uh, I pray that God will speak to you. Maybe you're looking for a new church. Maybe you're just visiting. Maybe you're new to the area. And uh, I pray that God would show you where it is he would have you to plug in and whether it's here or somewhere else. Uh, But I hope you leave here having heard from the Lord as we walk through this text together. Matthew chapter 14, we're going to examine verses 13 through 21. And this is a story that's probably familiar to many of us. It's the account of Jesus feeding over 5,000 people. In fact, it's more than 5,000 people because the account that we're given only counts the men. It says at least 5,000 men. So if you figure uh, wives and children being there as well, it's well over 5,000, maybe even 10, 15,000. Jesus does this great miracle. But as we look at Matthew 14 this morning... I want us to begin thinking and approaching the text with the thought in mind of of the way relationships change over time. You you enter this world and you're on your own for a while. And for many of us, we get married. So we enter into a relationship. And and in that relationship, we whether you realize it or not, when you are married, you take on the role of a fixer. For better or worse. You take on the role of a fixer, and not just in the, in the sense that you're always trying to fix things, but you genuinely want to help, right? When your spouse is struggling with something, it's out of love that you say, here, I want to help. Bring it to me. But then especially as you become a parent, you enter into this role that you are now officially a fixer, whether it's a Lego that needs to be put together for the hundredth time, Whether you're called upon to sew a stuffed animal together, you are now officially a fixer. And you know this because sometimes the kids will try to fix it themselves, correct? And you you applaud that. But then sometimes it's just a little bit outside of their skill set and their range. And you say something of the sort like this, bring it to me. Give it to me. Let me have it. So they get frustrated and upset. But the life of, of, of a parent is not just fixing broken toys. Sometimes it's, it's, it's fixing broken hearts. When, when your child goes through something difficult, you, you say, bring it to me. Share that burden with me. Talk with me. It can be that way with a sibling. It can be that way with any loved one. When a problem is placed in another person's hands, in a loved one's hands, children... Kids, when you place something that you're wrestling with in your parents' hands, I want you to know that oftentimes what you'll find is that your hands, the hands of your parents are magical. There's something about toys, something that's broken. When it's placed in a parent's hands, after you've tried to fix it, somehow their hands are magic. They are able to take what you could not fix and and put it back together. They're made of magic. They, parents have a, a knowledge about the universe that you can't even fathom yet. And they're able to fix broken things. 
They're able to handle big problems because their hands are bigger. Their hearts are bigger. Their minds are bigger. And if that's true for parents and if that's true for a spouse, how much more true is that of God? That He's able to take broken things and fix them. That His hands are bigger. That He has a deeper wisdom than you could possibly fathom. When we place our problems, our wounds, our traumas, our worries and our cares in His hands... He is able to do magical, miraculous things. Now that's all well and good. But you might be thinking, I'd love for that to be true. But does God even care? Does God even care to want to fix those things? Does God even care about when I'm going through what I'm going through, when I've had to deal with what I've had to deal with? Well, when we come to Matthew 14, we encounter a Jesus who is so beautifully portrayed as both God and man. Notice what he says, Matthew, in verse 13. It says, when Jesus heard about it. So here's the context. John the Baptist has been beheaded. And Jesus loved John. He was a friend and his friend has lost his life in a gruesome way. And how does Jesus respond? It says he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. Understand this. Jesus is God. He is the son of God who came in human flesh. But he's also man. He hears about laws. He hears about tragedy. And it affects him. He cares. So this morning, understand this, number one, whatever that problem is that you want to put in his hands, whatever your wrestling is, whatever that struggle is, God absolutely does care. He's different than any other person on the face of this planet. He's different than the whole world because what the world will do will care as long as there's a benefit for them. They'll care if it makes their reputation shine brighter. They'll care for all these other reasons, but, but nobody cares like Jesus cares. He hears about John and he goes away to be alone. So here we see the humanity of Jesus. He's affected by tragedy. He's affected by this, this tragic death of John. So he goes somewhere to be alone but then look at what it says. It says, when the crowds heard this, they hear that Jesus is going away to be alone. They followed him on foot from the towns. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. So we've seen his humanity. He's affected by this tragedy. But we also see his divinity. And you say, where do we see his divinity? How do I know this? Well, I'll tell you this. If I was going away to be alone and a large crowd followed me, you would not read what you see next in this text. It says he saw... A large crowd and what? He had compassion on them. He looks at them and instead of getting angry and, and saying, why are you following me? Instead of lashing out and saying, I just want to be alone. Can you give me a moment's rest? What does it say? It says that he wanted to go away for the express purpose of being alone. This giant crowd's follows him and he responds not in the way I would respond and not in the way many of us respond it says he had compassion on them he felt deeply for them 
you say, yes, okay, God may care, but, but I don't know God. You're the preacher, right? You, you, you're closer to God. You and God. Well, first of all, no, that's not true. I am no more closer to God than you might be. But you might say, but, but God doesn't really know me. Jesus didn't know all these people. He sees a mass of people, a sea of people, and he has compassion on every single one of them. So you might say, God may care, but he doesn't care about me. False. He doesn't care about my problems. False. He has compassion on them. And then what does he do? That compassion moves him to action. He says, and he healed their sick. If I could heal all of you of that, that summer the, you know, thing that Jesse mentioned, I would, but I can't. But Jesus healed all of, he, he healed their sick. He had compassion on them. So, he has the, these, these people and he has compassion, he has pity, he feels sympathy for them. But it's more than that. Because when Jesus is described as having compassion, this isn't just human compassion this is this is messianic passion compassion this is the messianic compassion that's expected of the one who would come in the name of god that would be sent by god you read over and over in the old testament that god is gracious and compassionate here we see jesus as man exhibiting the compassion that we see of god so he's god and he's man He's compassionate and he cares. Some of us might think that God, God is transcendent. That's a big word. That's a $10 word. Transcendent just means he's set apart. He's so far and high above. He is not like anything we've ever could see or know. He is so far high above us. And we might take that to the extreme and say he is separate. He wants nothing to do with us. He doesn't care about what us mere humans do. But that's not what the incarnation teaches us, is it? Jesus is God, the transcendent God who draws near. He is the transcendent God who becomes the imminent God, the close God, the near God. Sometimes we might miss the, the, the even radical statement that God came in human flesh and he walked among us and he saw the hurt he saw the sin he saw the struggle and he saw what we go through he lived it but he heals he has compassion so not only is he portrayed as human and as divine as the messiah but he's also depicted as a truer and better moses Look at what it says. It says, when evening came, verse 15, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it's already late. This is a desert place. This is an isolated, abandoned place. It's empty, desolate. In other words, they are in the wilderness. Just like Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and God provided for them and God cared for them. So Jesus is now a truer and better Moses caring and providing for his people. 
So all of this is going in the background of our minds that here is God in human flesh. Here is God having compassion on people. Here is God healing. Here is God providing. And then we shift a bit towards the second scene because it's getting late and they're in the wilderness. Israel was provided manna in the wilderness. But, but what about all these people in the wilderness? The disciples understand. They say, send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They understand. They're like me. They know when it's time to eat. Five o'clock, boom, I'm hungry. It's, ha it's literally happened before. We were, we were doing something at some point, and my wife asked me, are you hungry? I said, no, not really. I said, well, what time is it? And she said, 12.01. And like that, I kid you not, my stomach growled. <laughs> so Jesus, the disciples go to Jesus and say, Jesus, look, do the right thing. Do the kind thing. These people are tired. They've been out here. Don't keep them out here any longer. Don't keep them... Send them away. Send them home. And I love what Jesus says next. What does he say? They don't need to go away. Well, they don't need to go anywhere. It's almost like they say, Jesus, do this, do this right kind of thing and send these people away so they can go eat. And Jesus goes, why? Don't send, they don't need to go anywhere. Then what Jesus says is striking and he emphasizes the first word in, in the Greek, in the original. He, he emphasizes this. He says, they don't need to go anyway. You give them something to eat. That's the emphasis in the language. You, you all, give them something to eat. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I, you see this need? I want you to meet it. Jesus is using this as a teaching opportunity. He says, you see it, you notice it, you realize there's a need, so, you know, you take care of it. You do it. Give them something to eat. But we know there's a problem, isn't there? What's the problem? They can't. At least not in their minds. They look at the crowds and notice, uh, notice what's going on here. They see this mass of people. They see the crowds. They know they're going to eat. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And then verse 17, they say, but... That's not a good start, by the way. When Jesus tells you to do something and your first response is, but... You've already gone off course. But they say, we only have five loaves... And two fish here. So imagine you could fit that on this pulpit right here. Five loaves, two fish. Even if you had, you know, big fish. You put one here, one here, the loaves here. And this right here is what is supposed to feed over 5,000, 10,000 people. Now, what are they doing? Well, they're looking everywhere except for where they should. They're looking at the problem... They're looking at their resources. They're doing the calculus. They're doing the physics. They're thinking. And I don't know how long it took them to figure this out, but five loaves and two fish and that crowd, no, that's not happening. 
But here's where the story pivots. Because from that perspective, it's impossible. But when we get to verse 18, and I would submit to you, verse 18 is where the story turns. Because what happens? There's only one thing that changes at this point in the story. And what happens? The resources that are available exchange hands. What does Jesus say? He utters these beautiful words. Verse 18. Bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. Notice it goes on a little bit. It says, then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, think about it. Jesus knows what he's about to do, right? Jesus is so confident and he knows that he is going to be able to do this miracle that he goes ahead and tells people to sit down. If you went to a restaurant where they weren't sure they were going to have enough food, you wouldn't want them to seat you hoping that they have enough food, right? Jesus knows what's about to happen. He says, look, we got five loaves, two fish. Y'all get comfortable. Dinner will be ready in a minute. <laughs> Jesus knows what's up. He knows what's going to happen. So he says, bring them to me. But then look at this. He says, Matthew says that he told them to sit down on the grass. And then it says he took the five loaves and the two fish. What has changed? The disciples had five loaves and two fish. In their hands, that's not enough. Jesus takes the same number, the same amount of resources. Nothing changed. Matthew repeats, five loaves and two fish. But what's happened? They're in different hands now. And Jesus blesses them. And then look at what it says. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Now, I can't. We, we don't know what their reaction was, but, but they're having to go back to Jesus each time because now they've been tasked with distributing the food, right? It's not like Jesus gave everybody a bowl and it magically appeared. So you've got like 10,000 people there, and over and over again, the disciples are going to have to... I need another piece of... Thank you. Thank you. Yep, here you go. <laughs> yeah, I need another piece. I mean, what kind of lesson would they have learned from that? But it's not just that Jesus provides for them. He provides abundantly. Because look at verse 20. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Now there's a big difference between eating so that you're not hungry anymore and then eating where you're like almost miserable. Right? That kind of eating. You know? Like that Thanksgiving, loosen the belt in the recliner type of eating. It's not just they ate and Jesus gave them enough to like, here, you won't pass out on the way home. They ate and they were satisfied. But it's, it's not just that they were satisfied. There's even more. It says that they picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now, I don't know Jesus. If, I don't know if Jesus was, was smirking and laughing and, or if he was waiting to see what their response would be. But the fact that you have 12 disciples picking up 12 baskets of leftover food, what is Jesus saying? What are we to take away from that? Well, there's obviously a lesson that they are to learn. Each one of them said, we don't have enough. And each one of them had to carry a basket of leftovers. 
And then it says in verse 21, Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So again, this is a crowd. Some, some commentaries say it was about 10,000. Some say maybe even 15 to 20,000. And so Jesus does this work. He multiplies the loaves and the fishes. He gives the orders. He gives thanks. He breaks the loaves. And in a, in a work of God, He provides for all these people. So we see, because God, or because Jesus is God, He can do miracles with whatever little is placed in His hands. What we are invited to do, the invitation for each believer here this morning is that phrase that Jesus utters, bring them to me. Bring them to me. If you remember nothing else this morning, I hope you remember this. Because of who Jesus is, because he is God and man, bring whatever little you have and place it in his hands hands bring whatever little you have and place it in his hands there are there are numerous ways we could apply this i want to talk about five areas where we are able to bring our little and place it in his hands first of all it's our little faith it's our little faith what i love about this principle is that if jesus can do the miraculous, the amazing with the little. In fact, I would say he specializes in it. What does that mean for us as Christians? What does that mean for you here this morning if you're not a Christian? Or maybe you're struggling with your faith. Understand this, salvation. When we talk about trusting in Jesus Christ, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, what we're not saying is that you have to have perfect, flawless limitless faith you are not saved by how much faith you place in Jesus you're not saved by the constancy of that faith in Jesus you're not saved by having such a big faith that God looks at that faith and says wow we should save that guy in other words a little bit of faith in a perfect savior is enough so you might be here this morning and you say, Jason, I've got, I'm hanging on by a thread. I, I, I trust Jesus. I know I trust Jesus. But, but, but I don't have, I don't have this, this steadfast, this, this big, deep faith. I'm clinging. Hear me. Little faith placed in a perfect Savior's hands is enough to save you. You are not saved by how much you do what he says. You are saved because he always does what he says. He said, if anyone who believes in me will not perish. Not has a certain level of belief, a certain depth of belief, a certain width of belief, a quantity of belief. You are saved by faith in Christ, so that little faith placed in his hands, trusting Jesus, is enough to save you. 
And so maybe you need to hear that this morning. You've had a week where you say, look, I, my, my week's been like this. I have waffled. I, 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 it has been a wink that, that honestly I would like to forget as soon as possible. Trust in Jesus. And maybe you're not a Christian. And maybe you say, I don't have all the answers. I have doubts. I have questions. And I'd like to get all those things sorted out first. And maybe you feel like that's necessary. Well, listen to me. No, it's not. Maybe the first step for you this morning is to place that little bit of faith that God has given you and trust in Christ as your Savior. Understand that you have sinned and you are separated from God. And that's why Jesus had to come. Jesus didn't have to come just because we needed bread. He didn't have to come just so we could have a moral example. He had to come because sin, disobedience, has consequences. And that consequence is death. And Jesus goes to a cross and he dies that death that you deserve for your sins. That you deserve. And he takes your place. Such that the invitation is now given. The good news is that Jesus Christ did everything for you to be saved. Trust in him. So a little faith. God can do wonderful things with little faith. But a second area I want us to think about is a little church. I don't like the phrase small church. The average church in America is under 200. It's the mega churches that are the anomalies. Let's just be honest about that. And so I, I prefer the phrase normative, normal, average size churches but but sometimes we think that the size of our church and the resources of our church and the the programs what we have we we look at what we have we look at our five loaves and two fish and we say how can how can little old poplar spring do the miraculous fulfill the great commission reach people with the gospel change our community see the world changed Whoa. Jesus, if we're willing to place our few resources as a church, if you're willing to place your faith in the few, the few chances that you have in this church to, to entrust your labor to Christ, God can do amazing things. Jesus is not limited by the size of our church. You understand that, right? He's not limited by the number of people. He's not limited by our budget. He's not limited by our building. So a little church, if it's willing to take its little and bring it and place it in the Lord's hands, God can absolutely use it. So as a church, what does that mean? Well, the third area I want us to think about is our little time. Our little time. We don't have much time on this earth in general, but you might think, let me talk about myself. How often do I, how long do I preach? Usually 30, 35 minutes. It would be easy to say, what can, what can be done in 30 minutes? It's just a little bit of time. You might be a Sunday school teacher and you might be feeling like, what am I accomplishing in an hour teaching kids? What am I accomplishing in an hour teaching adults? Listen, if you're willing to take that little bit of time and invest it and entrust it to Christ and place it in his hands, he can do amazing, miraculous things. 
Some of you might not have filled out your ministry forms because you think, I don't have a lot of time. I can only give like maybe an hour every so often. Guess what? If you will place that one hour in his hands, he can do more than you ever believe possible. So maybe you need to fill out, fill out a ministry form. I know some of you do because we haven't gotten them yet. There's a little PSA there. But I understand. Listen, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to hammer you. But, but I, I understand that sometimes we think that unless I have this big chunk of time to devote to it, then it's not worth it. No, if it's just a little bit of time in his hands, it's more than enough. So little faith, little church, little time. What about little answers? Little answers. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is so often we encounter things where we just don't know. All the answers seem to, to not satisfy the big questions. You're, in, you're going through something right now. And if somebody asked you, what do, you, what do you think God's trying to teach you through this? Or why do you think this is happening? Your response is, I don't know. Maybe your answers seem so little, so insufficient. And maybe they seem like they don't explain enough. You know, sometimes when, I, when I've talked with people about Christianity and, and some of the objections to Christianity... They scoff at a simple idea as saying something as, you know, I don't know why that happened, but I do know this. God is good. To them, that seems like a little answer. That, that's such a small answer. But I'll tell you this. If you'll take that answer and place it in Jesus' hands, He will comfort you. He will grow you. He will provide for you. So maybe you have little answers, but then maybe the last area I want us to think about are little resources. And we've kind of already touched on this, but, but here the distinction is maybe you are in a situation where you realize I am insufficient and unable to deal with this. This is a... Sometimes we're most confronted with our little resources when we encounter big problems and maybe that's you this morning maybe you're at that point in life with something that you realize there is there is got to be something bigger somebody bigger somebody stronger I can't handle this anymore I've tried what can I do well take those little resources take take what little faith you have take what little time you have take what little answers you have and place them in his hands. I love, uh, Francis Schaeffer has a great sermon that he calls No Little People and No Little Places. And he essentially says this, There are no little people and there are no little places. There are no little people and there are no little places. The theme is that where God is concerned... In his sight, there are no little people and there are no little places. We are all valuable and put in valuable places, no matter how small they may appear to the world. So no matter how little you feel, 
no matter how little you have, no matter how big the problem seems, no matter how little or few your resources are, because of who Jesus is, bring whatever little you have and place it in His hands. Our God specializes in making miracles happen with just a little. And that is nowhere more evident than when we come to the Lord's table and we take the Lord's Supper. Because at the Lord's Supper, we're reminded just how little we literally bring to the table. Think about it. The Lord's Supper is Jesus instituting a feast, a banquet, a meal in which all the spiritual blessings in Christ are given to us. We are invited to the table and Jesus knows that we bring absolutely, not just a little, we bring absolutely nothing to the table. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of everything that Jesus did to save us. How we were totally unable to save ourselves. How we were lost in our sins. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, which we walked in according to the ways of the world. And the Lord's Supper reminds us, you were dead in your sins, but I have come that you may have life. You see, the Lord's table is not so much about you serving Jesus. It's about Jesus serving you. Reminding you giving you the bread, giving you the cup, and saying, not only did you, you didn't bring a little to come to this table. You're here, and you brought absolutely nothing. And the only reason you're here is because I did everything for you. So, here's what we're going to do. Mindful of this fact that we bring nothing. And in the problems that we face, that we bring little and place it in His hands. We want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we want to be reminded that Jesus has done everything for us. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite you to take a few moments and pray. Pray and, and ask the Lord to help you entrust that little in his hands, but also to thank him that when you had absolutely nothing, Jesus gave you everything by giving everything. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray, examine yourself, make sure that you've confessed any sin that you need to confess and you've repented and then we're going to invite you to come and take the elements back to your seat. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Before we pray, I want to say this. You are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper if you are a believer. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you are, not perfectly, but to the best of your ability by God's grace seeking to follow the Lord Jesus. You are welcome to come. If you've been baptized... As a believer, we invite you to come. If you have not been baptized as a believer, maybe you were baptized in a tradition where you were baptized as an infant and you became a believer later, we would still invite you to come because the Lord's Supper is for Christians across 
denominational lines. But the main requirement is that you are a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to follow him to the best of your ability by God's grace. So let me pray. And then you take a moment where you are, you pray to the Lord. And when you feel like you've, you've accomplished, you've done your business with the Lord, feel free to come take the elements back to your seat and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the invitation to bring our, our struggles, to bring our problems, to bring our worries, to bring whatever little we have and entrust them to you. And God, you remind us, God, that our salvation is not just a matter of us bringing a little. It's, it's an issue of we bring nothing and you grace us with everything. So Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, remind us of all that is ours in Christ. And Jesus, as you serve us, your body and your blood, Lord, may we be encouraged. May we be strengthened. God, may we be renewed at the hope we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.